We've entitled this morning's message, The Work of the Vine Dresser, Purging. Purging. Last week when we were together, we started dealing with the process of bearing fruit, the process of bearing fruit. Okay, but last week we started with the process of bearing fruit, and we noted that the objective of the branches is to bear fruit. That's why people are branches. It's to bear fruit and also to glorify God. And that bearing of fruit is done two ways, we noticed. It is done by abiding, which is the word that appears over and over again in this passage. And it is done also by purging or pruning, and I'll comment on this word in a, in a little bit, or cleansing. And um, those are the two ways by which the process takes place, that we bear fruit. It is necessary for salvation, for if we're, the concept of abiding was the first one we addressed, and we mentioned that in verses 4 to 7 last week, that this word abiding means to dwell with, to remain, or as it's really used, it's really to continue as well with Christ. And then we talked about the two aspects, that even for salvation, it is necessary to be abiding, to be dwelling in Christ, to be attached to the Lord Jesus Christ, if I can use that word loosely, or else you don't have salvation. It's necessary to be abiding for, for even salvation. But it's also necessary for sanctification. It is necessary, when I say sanctification, for bearing fruit, that I be abiding, that I be abiding in Christ. And last week we spent our time dealing with the two aspects of that. That is, there is a passive part of that, and there is also an active part. And if you don't teach both, or I don't understand both, or you don't understand both, it becomes confusing in our Christian walk. What am I to do? Just sit back and do nothing? What am I to do? Just be busy, 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 busy? Or how does this concept of abiding really work? And uh, there's a lot written in, in just one area, that, that you just rest and you do nothing. And there's another, that no, you got to do, 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 do. Well, I think the balance of Scripture in this concept of abiding is there's both an active and a passive part. The passive part is this. Simply put, God produces the fruit, not us. We have to abide in him. We bear it, he produces it. We don't produce it. We cannot produce spirituality in the flesh. It's got to come from God. It's his power. And what we're instructed to do in Scripture is to abide in Him, to rest in Him, to wait upon Him, to stay connected, if you allow that, to Him, to let Him work through us. That's the idea. So we need to stay that connected. We need to stay continuing on, persevering in the things of God and staying close to Him. The active part of it that we saw is that we still have to make decisions every day. We're involved in this world. This is real. It's real life. And we have to make decisions. And those decisions, we're told that we ought to be actively involved in walking with God. We are actively to be involved in reckoning the things that God has said to us as being true. We are to be involved in that we are to yield. That takes us taking a step back and letting God have his way. We are to actively Put on the armor of God. Those are things that we need to do actively. We ought to be alert. We ought to be watchful. If we're not, Satan, like a roaring lion, is waiting to devour. 
So we need to be actively involved. We need to resist Satan and so forth. And I could go on. The point is we saw in this concept of abiding, which will result in bearing fruit, we have both a passive and an active part. And to summarize it, I tried to do it in one sentence, and it's something that we all know, so I tried to really narrow it down. My words would be this. You know, the concept of abiding is we are to believe God and obey him. I can't make it any simpler. We are to believe him, that's the abiding in him, and to stay close to him, but then we're to obey what he says. We have to do that. So it's doing. So by doing that, we let him control our thoughts. We let him control our actions. We let him have his way in our life, just like the Lord Jesus Christ in Gethsemane. Not my will, thy will be done. It's, that's a yielding. We need to let him work his power through us so that the Spirit of God will be able to achieve the things that he wants to achieve. So it is not just a life of busyness. It's not just a life of doing, doing, doing. You can do everything, and I don't recommend that. You can be reading your Bible, praying all the time, going to every service, doing this, doing that, serving here, serving there, and you've got no time, as I said last week, for anybody else or anything else, and basically thinking you're living a spiritual life and you're wearing the right clothes and all of that. No, 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 that's not what it's all about. But neither is it that I simply say I trust in Christ and then I go to bed and I sleep the rest of my Christian life away. That's not the way it works. And it's not a life of non-activity. So it's believing God, then acting upon it with obedience. And to summarize the verses, let's look at them as I walk through and finish with that concept of abiding. In verse 4, let me remind us, there it is, it says, Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. So you cannot bear fruit unless you're remaining in Christ, unless you're continuing in Christ, unless you're abiding in him. Verse 5, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, watch, bears much fruit. And don't miss the last explanation. For apart from me, you can do some things. You can do everything. That is not what my Bible says. Nor is it what the scriptures say. You can do what? Nothing. You cannot do one ounce of spiritual production for the Lord if it's in your own power. You can't begin with Christ and then go on your way, on your own, and produce spirituality. You might produce a lot of effort. You might impress a lot of people. You might have a lot of other Christians pat you on the back when all of time in your heart is motivations for that's exactly what you're looking for. And if that's your Christian life, it'll produce nothing. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, in other words, no abiding, you're thrown away, you dry up, you're cast into the fire, and you are burned. And I will be talking about that in just a moment. In verse 7, we see again the concept of abiding. And notice how we tied it in last week. If you abide in me, and my words. Where do we get the concept of even trusting in Christ, of, of knowing that Christ is the way, of the concept of knowing what God wants? It's through the word that he gives us. And then we see we will have an effective and fruitful, if you will, even prayer life if we are abiding. So this concept of even prayer is not that I can just ask for anything I want. 
It's Christ abiding in me and his word so that my prayer life is even consistent with the character of God and what God says, and I can count on that. We know, according to 1 John, we've got the right petitions because we know we're doing what God's asked. That's abiding. That will produce fruit in your life. So God will produce the fruit naturally in your life by you simply abiding with both the active and passive part of it. So today we come to the second part of the process of fruit bearing, often the one that's a little uncomfortable if we're honest about it, and it's the concept of purging. It is the concept of pruning. I'll use this term carefully, trimming and also cleansing. And you'll see why I say cleansing in a few moments. In fact, there's an adjective that's used that way in the context. So let me deal briefly, first of all, with the word of purging, as it is in my translation and what I'm using here. So how do we bear fruit? We abide. How else do we, that process take place? It's by purging. The Greek word is katharo, okay? And what it means is to listen. This is important. It means to purify. We don't think of purging that way. But that's really what the word means. It means to purify. It means to make clean. That's why, as I said, if you look in verse 3, it says, you are already clean. That is the adjective that basically means you are already purged. That's what it is. And, and I like the translation clean because that's really what's reflected in the word. It makes clean. It makes pure. It makes without spot. That's what the concept of is purging. It's only used twice in the New Testament, and I want you to see it because it's only used twice. Once in this context a couple of times, and the other concept, the other time it's used, and I think it'll help you with the meaning, is Hebrews chapter 10. Would you turn there, please? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2. It's the only two times it's used. We think of purging just as the cutting, just as the trimming. Well, that's involved, as we will see. But that's not the purpose, and that's not the idea behind the word. When you think of Christ purging you, when you think of God purging me or purging you, we need to think in terms of what he's doing is purifying us. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, it's used in verse 2. And by the way, it says this is talking about the sacrifices they were doing every day in verse 1, year by year, and it never took away sin. Verse 2. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered, uh, offered excuse me, because the worshipers, watch this, having once been, and here's the word, cleansed, or have been purged, having once been purged, would no longer have need or have had con consciousness of sins. In other words, why go back to those sacrifices year after year? If they've really accomplished what they should have done, and that is to purge out that sin or to take it away, then you need, well, don't need to go back to them. And his point is, those sacrifices cannot cleanse you from sin. They cannot purge you from sin. And that's the concept that we have. So go back to John. Our English word, we use two different words. One is to prune. And if you look up the English word prune, it means to cut off. It means to cut back. It means to shape. And that's right from Webster's Dictionary. Also, if you look at the word purge in the English, it means to cleanse from infirmities. And that's why I think the proper translation is to purge, not really to prune, because we think wrongly. It is to cleanse it, and it's closer to it. 
So what the Father is doing, as we look at this passage this morning, when it says in verse 2, every branch that does not bear fruit, I'll deal with this in just a second, he takes away and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. That is, he is purifying. That's the way you want to think of it. He is cleansing us. He is making us better vessels, if you will, for his use. Okay, what is involved? Well, we have two types of branches. And the first one I have there in your outline is the non-fruit-bearing branches. How does he prune or how does he purge or how does he take care of, that is the vine dresser, the non-fruit-bearing branches? Look at verse 2 again. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, and we'll talk about that next. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he says, he takes it away. There are only two types of branches, folks. We've seen this in the weeks that I've been spending in this passage. There is no third type of branch. It's either a branch that is bearing fruit or a branch that does not bear fruit. And he clearly says that if the branch does not bear fruit, he takes it away. What does that mean? It's simple. He takes it away. He cuts it off. He cuts it off. He removes it, listen, from the vine. He removes whatever attachment there is from the vine. The Father does this. He removes it from the vine. In other words, to put it in the vernacular, he gets rid of the dead wood. He gets rid of it. Now, that already has got all kinds of things going through your mind. What are the possibilities that he's getting at? What does he mean when he says that he cuts it off? Well, to put it very simply, there's only one of three possibilities that I know of or that I've ever even read of and, and, and found in comparison. Number one is the possibility that he's dealing with a loss of salvation, that you've got a believer that's attached, he's cutting him off, he throws it away, and it's loss of salvation. That cannot be. Let me make it simple. Why can it not be? Let me make it simple with the teachings of John. Go with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Stay with me. I'll only do this in John and only with a couple of verses to help you to see why you need to study the scriptures and look at it. In John chapter 3, verse 16, we, you could have quoted it for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not what? What type of life does he have? Eternal. What type of life? Eternal. What does eternal mean? Forever. Forever. He, it means what it says. Eternal. He gives eternal life. John chapter 6. Let's go there. John chapter 6. Verses 37 to 40. All that the Father gives me. How many? All that the Father gives me. Yes, selections there. Will come to me. And one, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly what? Not cast out. I'm not done. Verse 38. I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that how many? All that he has given me, I will lose how many? Nothing. But raise him up the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son, believes in him, will have what? Eternal life. And I myself will raise him up 
the last day. One more passage, John chapter 10. Twenty-eight and twenty-nine. John chapter ten, twenty-eight and twenty-nine. And I give what? Eternal life to them. And they will what? Never <clears throat> perish. How often will they perish? Never. They will never perish, he says in verse twenty-eight. And how many people will snatch them out? No one. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one, verse 30. So those are just samples, but John, everything he's been teaching us is when you abide in Christ, when you come to Christ, when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. So it can't be that. He's not dealing with loss of salvation. The scriptures, I don't believe, teach that. Secondly, what about the concept, and this is very common, the second one is that it's the believer's works that are burned in chapter 15. Go back to John chapter 15. And the concept is that it's the same thing as 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That is, where we stand before the Lord and the good wood, hay, and stubble are burned up, but the person themselves is saved. And the, the interpretation would be that when he says that the Father takes them away, he's taking their life away, but they are still believers, so it's dealing with with his works. What about that? Well, I want you to notice this in the context of John chapter 15, because it's the context that determines it, not us. The branches are removed from the vine, not the works. He says in verse 15, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He is removing the branch, not the works. Let me tell you something, folks. Even in death, we are not removed from Jesus Christ. In death, in fact, we are absent from the body, present with the Lord. That hasn't cut us off from Christ. It's united us closer to Christ. Secondly, according to verse 6, John chapter 15, I hope that's where you are, I want you to notice what it says. It says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away. Watch. And it says he's thrown away as a branch. He dries up. And it says they gather them. Now let me first of all pause there for a second. Some of the other translations say the word, and man gathers them. That is not in the original language. This is not men gathering them up. There is no legitimacy for that. It is dealing with the fact that what has happened is he, that is the branch, has been thrown away, he has been gathered up, and he as a branch is cast into the fire and burned. It is the branch that is burned. And, and so what have you got? I don't think you're dealing with believers' works at all. Why? Because this situation is dealing with a branch that has no life in it. It bears no fruit. If it did bear fruit, listen, it would be purged. He would be trimming it back to bear more fruit. This doesn't bear any fruit. That's why he gets rid of it. He gets rid of the whole branch. The context itself makes a definite distinction between a fruit-bearing branch and a non-fruit-bearing branch to tell you this. There are no true Christians who don't bear fruit. You say, well, I know a lot. Then they better examine their salvation. 
That's the point. So I think what we're dealing with is unbelievers. It's the only other possibility. It can't be the first one. And what did we say? We said right from the get-go when we're talking about chapter 15 that the branches were professing believers. And I think that's what you have. Are there people that are professing believers that attach themselves to Jesus Christ but are not saved? Absolutely there are. By the way, context, Judas Iscariot was one of them who was there, who was with Christ. And I'll give you the context of that in just a moment. But we have that all the time. There are those who believe on another Jesus, according to 1 Corinthians. Isn't that true? They don't believe on the Jesus in the Bible. It's another Jesus that they're presenting. According to Galatians, there are those who follow another gospel, which is not really another gospel. That's what he's dealing with. It is the Matthew chapter 7, for comparison for yourself, verses 21 to 23. There will be many, listen carefully, many in that day who will stand before Jesus Christ and say, Lord, Lord, haven't I done many, watch, works in your name? We've cast out demons, etc., etc., etc. What's he going to say to them? Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. You attached yourself to me. You associated yourself with me. However, you were not truly a believer. Now, one of the other problems is the concept of abiding. Because it says abide in me and I in you. And you see that these these branches apparently in some way abiding. You cannot read the New Testament epistles into that. The apostles weren't there yet. This is not the same expression of in Christ that we're dealing with. That's reading the epistles back into the Gospels. They didn't understand it that way. They knew exactly what he was talking about. Why? Let me try to illustrate it to you. Maybe in a poor way, but I will try. I am not a gardener. I've attempted that. I was not successful with it at all. But I remember one of the easiest things, I guess you I was told you couldn't mess up zucchini. Well, we did. Every time we planted zucchini, we never got a lot. But we did get successful with tomatoes. Tomatoes, however that's pronounced, okay? But the tomato plant. And I can remember, I was puzzled. I would go out in a tomato plant, and there was what they called suckers. And these things would bear no leaves. It's just this big, long, green thing, and it was taking the life away. And I had to cut it back. And then the ones that really had fruit on them, they would, they would go. But not until I get rid of those extra things that had attached themselves. When my daughter recently, Erin and her husband, were able to acquire a house in Bellingham, and uh, they asked us to come over. We went over, and I did some yard work. And she had this bush on the side, and there were vines that had attached themselves, and it was choking the plant. And when I cut that away, all of a sudden, the plant, it was like it just was lit up, you know, because now it was able to relate. That's what he's dealing with. He's dealing with those who have attached themselves in some way, shape, or form. They are professing believers, but there's no fruit in the life. If there's no fruit, there's no life. That's the point. And I want you to see that it is the Father. He's the only one that can do this. When you look at the wheat and the tares in Scripture, the only one that can distinguish between them is him. That's why he says, you leave them alone, I'll take care of them. And he is the one that cuts them away. 
and he throws them away, they are burned in the context, and what you've got is Judas Iscariot as a picture, because that's why you've got verse 3. In verse 3, he says, you, that is the apostles, are already clean because of the word. How did that happen? Remember when we got to the discourse here? What happened? Judas Iscariot is gone. He's been cut out of it. He's not even there anymore. And when he's talking about the cleaning, it's not only the word of God, it's the word of God as he's been speaking it to them. And Judas Iscariot is the immediate context. They right now have been cleansed. Judas Iscariot was only attached to. He wasn't part of the church and basically was removed. Now, I gave you a responsive reading that I'm not going to take the time to turn to, but it's Romans chapter 11. I'd encourage you to read it, verses 17 to 24. In that passage of grafting us in, this was the issue. The Jews were no longer there because of, and he tells you, unbelief. And his warning to believe, professing believers was, if you don't stay attached, be careful, lest you be removed because of your unbelief. The ones that are removed are those who are unbelievers. And that has been true even with the nation of Israel. So what does he do? He cuts off those, and that's part of the process. But then there's also the fruit-bearing branches, which I want to spend the rest of the time on. That's verse 2 as well. In verse 2 he says, notice now he switches. Those who did not bear fruit, he cuts, he throws them away, basically. They dry up, get cast into the fire, they're burned. The branches are, verse 6. And now in verse 2 he says, and every branch that does bear fruit, what does he do? He prunes it. Why does he do that? So it may bear more fruit. And that is not fun. That is a painful process, is it not? I remember having, and I say remember having, we have one left. But I remember we, I, I happened to love the smell of lilacs. And we had a nice pink lilac bush. And I remember it bore a lot of fruit one year and so forth. So I just said, let's leave it alone. I don't want to touch this thing. And the next year, it was so full of branches. And you know what? I remember that we went out. We had one branch that had about three pieces of, because we didn't do anything to it. And we didn't want to touch it because it looked so good. We made a mistake. And then the following year, so what I did that year, I cut off everything, and it, and it looked so bad. I thought, oh, no, this is dead. Next year, it bloomed like you couldn't believe because we trimmed it. We got involved. That's the fruit-bearing process that's uncomfortable to us. All believers bear fruit, and all fruit-bearers are true believers, and the desire of God, listen, isn't just that we bear fruit, it's that we bear more fruit, and that we bear much fruit. Why? Because he's glorified in that. And so what happens is, how does that happen? It happens, let me give you four ways for our practicality this morning that I believe that God does this pruning in the believer's life. The first way is personal, and it's probably the easiest way. How is it? Through the word of God. Number one, he prunes us, just as he said here, through the word of God. He prunes us, that they will, and you are already clean. How? Because of the word which I spoke to you. You look at verse 7. In verse 7, he says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, then you'll be able to ask whatever you will, and it will be done. Turn with me to John chapter 8. Remember this? 
John chapter 8. God uses the word of God, is what I'm saying, number one, to prune the life of believers. That's why we need to read it. As we go into the word of God, he's constantly using it in our individual lives. Isn't that wonderful? So that when we have our devotions, when we read, he's using that word of God to show us how he can, remember what the word means? How he can purify us. Oh, our position's pure, but our thoughts aren't pure every day. Our motives aren't pure every day. Our actions aren't pure every day. And as we personally are alone with the Lord, or we come to a service like this, or we're in a Sunday school class, or, or we're in a, a small groups. And by the way, I want to encourage you guys. Go to those small groups. I've been visiting them. It is a blessing to see what God's doing in your lives. It's a blessing to me. If you're not there, connect with one. It's wonderful. Why? God's word is coming out, and it's changing people. And in chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, look at it. And Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed on him, if, notice the condition, if you continue, there's the concept of what I've been trying to tell you with abiding, in my word, then are you truly my disciples, or the disciples of mine. That's the evidence by continuing in the word. Now notice what it says, the next verse. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. It is the word of God. Let me give you some other references. In 2 Peter chapter 2, I won't turn there, verse 2. It says, as newborn babes, what happens if somebody just trusts in Christ? As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. Why? You're going to grow by it. God is going to grow you. He does it. It's not you. It's not me. But as you're in the word of God, that's why you need to read, not because I tell you to. Because it's got part of God's pruning process. And he's going to help you to grow. It's just like a child. They have to have milk. They have to have cereal and all the other things you want to throw in there, including chips and all the other good stuff. But, and brownies and all, you know, all that good stuff. But they need that. And we need the word of God in us. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 is another one where it says that he uses the word of God and we're cleansed through that. Psalm chapter 119, or Psalm 119, verses 9 to 11. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? How, <coughs> oh, excuse me, by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hidden my heart. Why? So that I might not sin against thee. It's the word of God that's a cleansing process. And why is that? You know why it is? Because of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It is the word of God that's sharp. It's the word of God that pierces down into the soul, down into the joints down into the marrow. It is the word of God that is able to discern. I can't discern that. You can't discern that in one another. And you know what's frightening? We can't even discern it in ourselves. But the word of God is able to even to discern the thoughts in, listen to this, and the intents of our heart. That's why it cuts as a knife. And it goes right through. God's using it to trim if we obey god if we love god we will obey his commandments the word brings us encouragement the word brings conviction turn with me to a passage you know second timothy chapter three how many times do we quote this but look at it again god uses his word that's why i encourage you to read the word of god 
It's not so that you become an intellectual genius or become someone who just can quote scripture. It's so that God can use it in our lives as he intended. We know it. John, uh, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture, notice it's singular, by the way. All scripture is inspired by God. It is profitable for what? For teaching, watch this. For reproof, that hurts. For correction, that hurts. For training in righteousness, that's good. Why? So that the man of God may be, what? Adequate? You say, I don't know how to witness to people. Get in the word of God. You say, I don't know how to behave at work. Get in the word of God. You say, I don't know how to be a good husband. Get in the word of God. Say, I don't know how to be a good wife. Get in the word of God. Say, I don't know how to parent. Get in the word of God. It's going to what? Perfect you. Why? Equip you for every good work. It's part of the fruit, wasn't it? God uses his word in our life. That's one way. What's another way? Ooh, this one's tough. Number two, this purging process is through the word of God. Number two, it's through trials. Oh, boy. Yep. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. I won't have you turn there. You can mark it down. You can turn it if you want. But what is it? Count it all joy. Oh, yeah, sure. Count it all joy when you fall into various, that is, all kinds, multicolored types of trials, knowing what? That God's using the trial to perfect us, basically. That's what it says. Knowing that the trial of your faith works patience, and so forth. God uses trials in our life to help us. We learn through them. And it doesn't matter, by the way, while there is the scriptural studying of it, and it's in some aspects important to know, it doesn't matter whether the trial come directly from God, whether it came from Satan, whether it came from my own stupidity, or what it was. If the trial's there, no matter what the source was, don't worry about the source, just let the trial be used of God to do what he wants to do with it, and that is to help you to grow. Because he uses trials. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verses 6 and 7. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice. Oh boy. Even through, though now for a little while it's necessary that you have been distressed. How? By various trials. Why is that the case? So that the proof, verse 7, of your faith, watch how important that is. Being much more precious than gold. Who would not like to have a pocket full of gold right now with the way the price of gold is these days. And if you don't know what it is, take a look on the internet and you'll fall off your chair. And they expect it to go even higher. More important than all of that gold is the trials of our faith. And gold's perishable, even though it tested to be fire, watch this verse seven, might be found to result in praise, in glory, in honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is using those trials to test our faith, to help us mature. It's a testing of our faith. Isn't it true that Joseph in the Old Testament learned through trials? Mm-hmm. By the time it was done, he could look at his brothers in the eyes and say, I know you had bad intents. You sent me here. Don't worry. Basically, I'm not going to kill you. He didn't use those words. But because God showed me, you know why I was here? Because God had it planned all along so that I could preserve the nation of Israel or it could be preserved through me and you could be preserved as a family. God was at work the whole time. How did he do that? 
through crying in prison when he thought he was going to be there forever. Through appealing to the Lord and letting the Lord work through the trials and tribulations. To being falsely accused, never pleasant. Isn't that what happened with Peter? Absolutely. I never knew him. I never knew him. I'm telling you, I never knew him. After the resurrection, Peter, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Peter, do you love me? I know. You know it, Lord. Why are you asking me that? Then feed my sheep. Shepherd my flock. And what have you got in the book of Acts? The first sermon, quote unquote, is Peter with boldness saying, you crucified the Lord of glory. He's the one you need to turn to. Trials and tribulation brought that about. So God uses that as part of the purging process. Two more things. Uh, is it one more thing? One more thing that I have down. I think I said I had four. One more thing, and that is, this is the worst of all, and that's chastening. 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 What is that? That's done. Chastening can come in many forms. The best form is when we're in the word of God and God uses it in our life to bring conviction and we repent. But it's when a professing believer is chastened. Sometimes that comes in the form of another believer, by the way. That's Galatians chapter 6. I really believe that. Where another believer has fallen into something and we can have the courage to go to them because not we're better. We have to be careful that we don't stumble. But because we're concerned for them and we want to lift them up, and so we pick them up, and that's a form of chastening. Another form of chastening that comes from God is he allows church discipline to happen. Where if you don't repent, then it's serious that two or three come, and then you still don't repent. And so it comes to the place that the church has to deal with the situation. That's never pleasant. But then there's the one you read about in Hebrews chapter 12, and that is where the Lord takes matters into his own hand. And by the way, with the church, you've got, for example, in Corinthians, in the book of Acts, uh, and so forth. But you've got also some with the Lord. And if the Lord hasn't been able to reach you through the word, and he hasn't been able to reach you because you are truly a believer, and you've borne a little fruit, but there's not a lot of fruit coming out, and you're not paying attention, it might come to chastening where the individuals didn't work, the church didn't work, and it even gets to the place, if you will, of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he says some of you are actually dying because you won't listen. And it's not because they weren't uh, a believer. Compare with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 2 for just a minute. 2 Timothy chapter 2. You see, the whole concept of purging is this. When you hear the word purging, Think of it in terms of God purifying me so that I can be a better believer. And I will do this very quick in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let me just go down to verse 14. You can look at the verses in, before that because it's, it's important. It's dealing with how he dealt with hardship and so forth and so on. But get down to verse 14. Remind them, he's telling Timothy, of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which are useless that leads to ruining a ruin of the hearers be diligent to present yourselves watch approve to God a workman now that's dealing with the word of God yes who does not need to be ashamed 
accurately handling the word of God. Now watch this. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Notice how it affected uh, professing believers. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying the, re the resurrection's already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. By the way, there's an, there's an indication to be careful, because we can lead others' faith to be destroyed by talking about things that really were not profitable. And then he says, nevertheless, in verse 19, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those that are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord, a watch, is to abstain from wickedness. And then we have this. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but vessels of wood and earthenware, some of honor, some of dishonor. Verse 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And then it goes on, the rest of the chapter, you can read it, talks about some of the things that should be going on. The bottom line is this. Again, God wants us to be vessels that he can use for his honor and glory, not just to bear fruit, but more fruit and much fruit. And how does it happen in the believer's life? It happens through the word of God, through trials, and even the chastening hand of God. And as I summarize first uh, John chapter 15, just with a few words, verses 1 through 8, the true vine, the true vine is Jesus Christ. The branches, professing believers. Then what? The vine dresser, the Father. Without Christ, there is no salvation. Without Christ, there is no fruit for the believer that will be produced with as much and more. So what are the branches to told to do? Abide. Come to Christ, first of all, if you haven't. The Lord Jesus Christ was sent into the world so that sinners could look to him and believe on that sacrifice in their behalf and trust in Christ for salvation. He paid the penalty and price. We're all sinners. Come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Christ bore that, paid the penalty, resurrected from the grave. Believe on him and you shall be saved. And then, fellow believer, continue to abide in Christ. Fruit bearing is a natural process because God produces it. If I'm abiding in him, there'll be fruit. It happens by abiding, and it happens by purging. It is God's job, not ours, to cut away those who just make professions, but there's no fruit. And it's God's job through his word, through trials, and if necessary, through chastening, to purge us. And what he's doing, folks, is it's a loving father that's cleansing us and purifying us so that when we stand before God, our joy will be full, but he will get much glory for the fruit that's been born in our life. Thank God for the process of pruning. It's not comfortable, but the purging and pruning process is necessary so that we can bring glory to him. And the last verse of that passage, verse 8, it says, this proves that we belong to God. It proves through that process. So bear up under the trials. They're not easy. 
Remember that they're only for the moment, but it brings a far more greater glory later when we stand before God. So you're probably going through some trials right now. Thank God that he's dealing with you and he's cleaning you and making you a better vessel for his use. And your experience will help you to grow in your faith and even help others in their faith as well. Let's pray. Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you for the metaphor that you've given us in John chapter 15 of the vine and the branches. I pray, Father, and ask if there be in our audience those who have not yet come to Christ, open up their hearts, help them to see that they need to abide in him. Without him, they can do nothing. Without him, they cannot come into the presence of God. Open up their understanding that they might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And Father, one of the biggest dangers we see in Scripture over and over again is those who profess Christ, they don't see any fruit in their own life. No one else sees fruit in their own life. They've attached themselves by whatever means. Oh, Father, it's our prayer that you'd open up their understanding to that, that they might become a true believer and truly trust in Christ allow Christ to be Lord of their life, and Father, see themselves as helpless without Christ so that they might have the gift of eternal life and will be a branch that's not just attached falsely, but truly attached so that you can work through us. And we thank you and praise you, Father, with believers. It's your desire not to just be satisfied with fruit in our life, but more fruit and much fruit. Father, that process sometimes painful as we read the word, as we face trials and sometimes even chastening. But Father, we thank you that you're a loving God, God that cares about us, and I pray that you'd help us to continue to be available and allow you to work your will through our life that we might be better vessels fit for the Master's use for the honor and glory of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.